Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Daniel Golden. Each week we gather to look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday worship. Today we're going to be looking at the readings for the second Sunday after Epiphany. The bumper music that you heard coming in is a traditional wedding hymn out of our hymnal. And uh, you probably have already figured out if that's the case. We're going to be talking about marriage. We're going to be talking about at least something with regard to God's gift of marriage. And we'll see that right off the bat in our gospel reading for today. Second Sunday after Epiphany, the Holy Gospel is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Vicar, take it away. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, here we have in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that verse 11 says, uh, And Jesus manifested his glory... It was an epiphany. He epiphanied before them. And so you can see why we have this as one of our readings during the season of epiphany. Pastor, uh, here in John chapter 2, we, we are confronted with Jesus and a wedding and uh, the wedding rituals and customs of first century Palestine. But I want to I talk about what goes on before John chapter 2, and there's a lot that happens. You know, we have John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, which is oftentimes referred to as the prologue, the prologue of John. We hear those words read to us on Christmas Day. They really emphasize and highlight the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then immediately, Jesus is an adult. We don't have anything with his childhood. Immediately then, we have Jesus and John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have Jesus calling the first disciples. We have Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel. And then we have the wedding at Cana. So we already have Jesus grown up, uh, the call of the disciples. Jesus and his disciples are invited to this wedding. What are we to make of the way that John 
writes his gospel for us, that we have uh, no birth narrative, we have no early days of Jesus, we have no flight into Egypt, we have none of that stuff, and we just start out right off the bat with John the Baptist and the calling of the disciples. Well, um, several things. First off, I wouldn't say that John doesn't have any sort of incarnation teaching or any sort of uh, birth narrative. It's just uh, highly poetic in, in a certain sense, where he talks about the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In that one sentence, which I think is chapter 1, verse 14, uh, the entire birth narrative of Jesus is contained. And that's probably because John is actually the last living apostle and the last writer of a gospel uh, as an eyewitness of what's happened to Christ. And so he knows that Matthew and Mark and Luke have written their Gospels. He's probably read them and knows what's in there. And he is now writing a, uh, an account to offer more of a theological teaching about who Jesus was and to point out some things that weren't in the other Gospels, some things that are. Uh, but he's got more of a theological bend uh, where he's teaching who Jesus is and how that's made revealed and manifest amongst us in various signs uh, and sayings and teachings of Jesus. And so it's not that John is writing something different. He's just coming at it from a different direction and focusing on different things for his own purposes. Maybe now would be a good time to talk about the difference between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, and the Gospel of John. The first three Gospels are oftentimes referred to as synoptic Gospels, and the, the style, as you pointed out already, of the Gospel of John is starkly different. The content, uh, it's, it's, all, it's a Gospel. It's talking about the same thing, but it does things in a different way. How uh, how is that word synoptic to be understand with regard to Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Well, it's a Greek uh, origin word. Synoptic is uh, soon means with, and optic has to do with seeing or vision or eye. And so uh, there, are those three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have the same view of what's going on. They all mention a lot of the same events, and maybe they give slightly different details and from slightly different perspectives, but the basic outlines are very similar and the same. Um, whereas John is doing it completely on his own uh, in his old age, and, and I think John's gospel is one of the best ones because it is very simple language, uh, both in its Greek writing and even um, in the way we read it in English, and yet he's able to bring across immensely deep theological things in that very simple language that you can study for your entire lifetime and never quite grasp it all. And so they are different in that regard. It's not just a first this, then this, then this. It is written with a lot of dialogue and a lot of deep theological underpinnings that are hidden beneath this very simple language that makes it tremendously great and I think also says it's probably inspired the uh, probably <laughs> uh, the uh, yeah probably the uh, the thing that I want to say is that John knowing the synoptic Gospels John writing late in life in a sense uh, filled in some of the gaps in the story and I, I want to be careful in saying that 
because I don't want you to think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are somehow uh, faulty or insufficient. But we have accounts in John that are not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, including the account that we have right here, the wedding in Cana. How would you how how would you describe what I just said? Because uh, I know you'll do it in a better way. Well, um, John John is focusing on seven signs so that's what structures his book it's not a narrative where point a happened then point b then point c he is focusing on seven signs seven being a complete number and he goes through each of those signs and in a way each one of those epiphanies who jesus is reveals who he is and that's what his focus is he doesn't worry about some of the other things that are in the other gospels because he does those in different ways for example um Transfiguration, he kind of has the book of Revelation of St. John that takes care of that whole big uh, transfiguration thing. Um, and uh, uh, even um, he writes different letters uh, in epistles where he talks about love, which are brought out also in his gospel. And so he's got, as, a, as an old pastor looking back and the last living eyewitness of Christ, he is trying to put this complete final testimony forward that shows exactly who Jesus is by focusing on these signs, by seeing those signs as fulfillment of what has been done in Moses and in Genesis, and uh, um, bringing the recorded history of Jesus to its close before he dies. And at that point, Scripture, the canon, is closed, if you will, not closed in the sense that we might not discover another book, but no one else is writing a first-hand eyewitness account of Jesus after the death of John. Okay, well said, well said. So this brings us to this first sign. And uh, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Pastor, uh, I don't know if you want to make any remarks about the phrase on the third day, but uh, Cana, Galilee, can you give us some um, uh, geographical kind of uh help with what's going on here? Yeah, uh, Jesus grew up uh, in Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth was a teeny tiny little village that was uh, just to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Um, And just to the north of that, there's two possibilities for where this particular village is, but there's another little village called Cana. Um, And so it would be directly to the west of the Sea of Galilee. It wouldn't be far from where the Battle of Hattin would be fought uh, during the Crusades, where uh, the Crusaders finally started losing again to Saladin. Uh, I think there's a movie version of that that you can watch, but it's not far from that particular location. And so... uh, The third day part is very important also because John is writing everything with this view through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we see this wedding as a kind of a eschatological or end times view of what's going to happen on the last day when we leave this veil of tears behind and enter into the wedding feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, uh, where Christ himself will provide more than just wine for here and now, but rather the finest of wines and the best of cheeses for all eternity. Um, And and so I know we're running out of time here, but that's kind of where maybe we should start off with on this particular section. Okay, well, we got just a little bit here. It says, Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. What are we to make of that? 
Well, there are some who would say that this wedding would be a relative of Jesus, and that's why he's invited um, and able to bring his disciples also. Um, And that's also then perhaps why, as we'll see uh, in a little bit, and as Vicar read, Mary is concerned that there's no wine. That would be a major faux pas, a big issue in dealing with um, a wine if, if you run out of that and the party has to quit and you're the family responsible for it, that looks bad on you. Just like if the beer runs out at the, um, the wedding reception that you go to, the family has kind of uh, egg on their face. So there's some who think this is a relative of Jesus, and it's certainly possible, especially in these teeny tiny small towns in the ancient world. They're probably related somehow, but to say more than that would be educated guessing. Okay, uh, does Mary have any kind of an official capacity at that this wedding? Almost looks like she's the wedding planner. Well, um, if if it is a relative, she probably would in the same way that any relative has a concern about a wedding going well. Um, and maybe that's as far as we can take that. You know what I mean? There's some things that maybe are evidence that it's not in the sense that there's uh, servants and things like that. And Mary and Joseph wouldn't necessarily have had the funds to be able to do things like that. But who knows? I guess There's a there's a wedding. Jesus and his family and disciples are invited. And now we have a major problem. We've run out of wine. We're going to take a look at how Jesus solves that problem when we come back from our break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the second Sunday after Epiphany. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we take a look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday worship. Today we're looking at the readings for the second Sunday after Epiphany. The gospel reading for the second Sunday after Epiphany. The first of Jesus' miraculous signs. The wedding at Cana. Jesus turning water into wine. John 2, 1 to 11. Vicar, you want to read those words once again and get them fresh in our mind? On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, 
Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, we've, uh, we've talked about some of the um, isagogical nature of where Cana is at. We've talked about some of the structural things with the Gospel of John. We've talked about that uh, we don't want to go into any wild speculation about why Jesus and Mary were at this wedding. We just know that they were invited, and they went. Uh, Mary may have had some sort of an official capacity or may just out of Christian sisterly love been concerned when the problem arises that they've run out of wine. As Pastor Moline said, a major faux pas with regard to the celebration, the wedding celebration that lasts multiple days. Now, Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus responds to her in a way that almost sounds like he's back-talking her or being a smart aleck. He says, and this is John 2, verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Pastor, help us understand that verse. Well, uh, it may sound blatantly you know, smart alecky to our ears. But the truth is, it's just a, a way of writing down what actual spoken Greek sounded like when it was talked back and forth. And so it's not actually smart alecky. This is just the way, even in English, we have little ways we speak that when we actually write down the language, we don't do it quite that way. Um, so so it's just spoken Greek, and it's just fine spoken Greek, and it's not smart alecky. In fact, it's probably respectful, just as Jesus is supposed to be keeping all the law he does. Um, now, the important part there actually is the second part, where my hour has not yet come, because here we have Jesus alluding to what's coming on later in the book, his, his own death, his resurrection, and that's the important thing where his glory is really, truly manifested. And so in a way, he's saying to his mom, uh, this isn't how my glory is going to be made, because in a way, his mom is taking matters into her own hands. Uh, she knows who Jesus is, uh, and so when there's no wine, she knows that he can fix it, and she knows that uh, he can do it just by the power of her, his word, because he is God in the flesh. Uh, so the him is wrong. You know, he does know, or she does know. <laughs> okay. Mary, um, Mary, did you know? Yeah, she did. She did, okay. which is why she tells him there's no wine. But his hour has not yet come, and it doesn't come until John chapter 17, after Jesus had finished uh, uh, his high priestly prayer and his uh, farewell dialogue, uh, he says, uh, 17.1, when Jesus had finished speaking these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Uh, I glorified you on earth, have accomplished the work that you've given me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before you and before the world existed. Lots of great things there. First off, it reflects the language that we have in the Athanasian Creed. Uh, whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Trinity and also the two natures of Christ and uh, the reality of the life of Christ. But then also we have this idea that going to the cross to bleed, to suffer, to die is the way that God glorifies Jesus. And that's the way we really see who he is and he is epiphanied to us. And so Jesus says, this is coming. Why am I worrying about this little wine thing? And it's it's done in, in uh, patient understanding uh, by God of our sinful human natures. And while the problem of having no wine is uh, extremely minor, in comparison to the problem that we have with sin and we cannot save ourselves. And it is for that hour that Jesus has come into the world. Jesus is not unsympathetic to the problem at hand. Mary says, uh, do everything that he says. And so Jesus does something. Um, we're, we're told that, uh, Six stone water jars, Jewish rites of purification, and they're big jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. They're really big jars, yeah. Yeah, big big honking jars. Jesus said to the servants, uh, when you think that the average gas tank in your vehicle is, uh, oh, maybe 15 or 16 gallons, and if you have an SUV, it might be 20 or 22, uh, we're we're talking a lot of water in these jars. And archaeologically speaking, we have... um some of these type of jars in existence still, and they are uh, eight inches thick carved into the stone. So just imagine a stone that is eight inches thick, probably three or four feet tall, and uh, three or four feet in diameter. Um, that's how big these jars are, that they can hold this much wine. So the jars themselves probably weigh a ton, and then you have the wa- water inside of them. Fill the jars with water, Jesus says. And the servants obeyed him. They filled them to the brim. Jesus then says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. What did the master of the feast do, Vicar, when he tasted the wine? Well, he expected the wine to get worse over time as people had more and more of their drink of wine. He expected some bad wine. And all of a sudden, the best wine is served and that quite surprised him. Yes, and, uh, you know, this is how people are even to this day. You know, uh, late in the evening when people have been imbibing, uh, you don't get your best bottle of wine or your most uh, fancy bottle of beer out last. Uh, you get the cheap stuff, cheap stuff out last because nobody's going to notice and nobody's going to care anyway. They're already um, partially inebriated. And so we have something backward here, kind of a kind of a reversal theme that we're introduced to. Pastor, what is the significance of this good wine, bad wine, first, last? Everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine till now. Is there is there a Christological or eschatological thing that's going on here, or is this just Jesus doesn't make junk, he can only do the best? 
Well, um, there's on the on the basic level, yes, Christ is just making uh, wine and he's doing the best because he's God. But in the uh, the deeper level here, we're seeing a fulfillment of the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, we're seeing a fulfillment of the Psalms when uh, on this mountain the finest wine will be served, and we're talking about this is the wine of heaven. Uh, we have all the fulfillment of uh, different places in the Old Testament where wine is drank together with people, for example, with Melchizedek and whatnot. And so Jesus providing the finest of wine here at this wedding teaches us who he is, God in our flesh, and it also then teaches us what's to come, which is the great wedding feast of the Lamb and his kingdom. On the last day of our lives and in this world, uh, we will leave this sinful world and we will enter into the world to come, and we will be a participant of the um, marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end, is the way we say it in our liturgy. And so, all these things Christ is accomplishing with these few words and this, this miracle that he does here at Cana in Galilee, fulfilling the Old Testament, teaching us what's to come, and giving this good wine to these people to celebrate their wedding, and blessing all marriages in a sense as well. We have, we have Jesus doing this miracle. We have Jesus saving the day by bringing wine so the people can continue to celebrate. We have all these things going on, and yet this sign, this miracle, is a manifestation of his glory, the glory that you talked about before with regard to the hour that Jesus has come for, the hour of his death and his resurrection, this manifestation. Jesus doesn't do this stuff just to prove that he can do it. Jesus doesn't manifest his glory because he needs his ego stroked. Jesus manifests his glory in another major theme in the Gospel of Mark, the very last sentence, and his disciples believed in him. Why is this last line so important to this miracle account? Well, uh, that's really the crux of the matter, right? The way that you get into heaven is faith in Jesus Christ, that he is God in the flesh for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, this is the, the point that matters. All the rest of the stuff, um, I don't want to say it's not important, but that's the main theme. That's how you're saved, is faith in Jesus Christ. So when he does this miracle and his disciples believe in him, that begins their Christian identity that begins their Christian life, that uh, is the reason that they have salvation. And it's not just that way for those disciples, but by extension, this is the reality for you here and now. The way that you are saved, as a, a, a listener of the radio station or whatever, the way that you are saved is faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Uh, and that's the most important thing then in your life. And that's going to be highlighted then in the next chapter of John, John 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus. And we have the, the famous passage, uh, For God So Loved the World, John three sixteen. And then I'm always intrigued by the last verse of John. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And the reason he changes water into wine is to teach people, to show people, to manifest his glory that he is God in the flesh. Why? To save sinners from their sin. Great theme in Epiphany, great theme in our gospel reading for today. We need to take a short break when we come back. 
We'll take a look at our Old Testament reading for the second Sunday after Epiphany, Amos 9, 11 to 15. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. We heard as we came in from our break, Oh, Father, all creating. It's to a very, very familiar tune, The Church is One Foundation. It's a great wedding hymn talking about how God is the one who has created, instituted his gift of marriage. In our first two segments, we looked in great detail at the gospel reading for the second Sunday after Epiphany, John 2, 1 to 11. And we would think that our Old Testament reading would also extol God's gift of marriage, maybe something from Genesis chapter 2. But instead, we have a little bit of a different flavor and a little bit of a different focus. There is a different connection between our Old Testament reading, Amos 9, 11 to 15, and that first sign, that miracle of Jesus changing water into wine. Vicar, Amos 9, 11 to 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the shredder of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. All right. Um, I don't know, Pastor. Maybe uh, maybe you're as shocked as me when uh, we think or we see that uh, we got a wedding, God's gift of marriage, but that text from John 2, the connection with Amos 9, is not the gift of marriage, but in a sense, a land flowing with milk and honey, i.e. wine, perfect wine, uh, dripping with wine. And then we have this whole theme of restoration and remnant. It's not so much the event of the wedding, but it's who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to accomplish. Um, first of all, some initial thoughts on 
Amos, Amos 9, in that day, starting at verse 11, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. That really is kind of an odd terminology or maybe an unfamiliar phraseology, the booth of David that is fallen. What's Amos talking about, Pastor? Well, uh, the word booth kind of is an interesting thing, but it is a word that's used elsewhere in Scripture. We even have the Feast of Booths and whatnot, and all it means is kind of a tent or a dwelling place or whatnot. And we even have in the beginning of John's Gospel uh, that uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word uh, there is actually the same word for booth, tabernacled, uh, that sort of thing going on here. And so we're talking about David as kind of a house, if you will, a a dwelling place. Uh, we, We still use that sort of language now, the house of Windsor is who's in charge over over the the pond in England. And so God will raise up the house of David that is fallen and repair its breaches. In other words, he'll put it back together, raise up its ruins. And this is important because this comes right after uh, the first part of chapter 9 in Amos, where we hear about the destruction of Israel, uh, where we're very clear that uh, the capitals and the thresholds will shake and shatter upon all the people and everything will be destroyed. Uh, and uh, the Lord God of hosts who touches the earth and it melts and who dwells, all who melt, dwell in it mourn, uh, he's doing this destroying and this destruction. Uh, now we have after that this promise that he'll also heal and put back together what has been broken and destroyed. And so it is a contrast in a way if you look at the entire book of Amos and especially this particular chapter. When, uh, when we see early on in, in our text, Amos 9, 11 to 15, uh, he's gonna he's gonna raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and I think there's some uh, Davidic dynasty kind of things that are going on there too. Um, the fact that there is no king and that there will be a king and who will this king be and all this kind of stuff. Um, repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old. Are we talking about the lineage of David here? Are we talking about the temple that will be destroyed and rebuilt? Are we talking about the person and work of Jesus in that he will be lifted up or raised up uh, from the tomb after he is dead for three days? Or are we talking about a new heaven and a new earth that will come on Christ's second coming? I, I'd say it's probably almost all of those. Um, the one that I'm not 100% sure about with Amos is the destruction of the temple. Amos is writing uh, more in regards to the northern kingdom of Israel where they didn't have a temple. Um, not to say that that wouldn't affect things, but he, he's dealing more with the Assyrian captivity and destruction and... Uh, um, they didn't have the temple in the northern kingdom. But the, all the rest of those things, I think, would be good examples of what it's talking about. And so, so in other words, your answer to me is yes, maybe, yes, yes. Yes. Okay, got it. Okay, continue. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. And I think the picture that is being done is really neat, too, because this is the way 
they did things back in the day. Rather than pick up all the broken rocks and try and uh, restack them, what they did is they just leveled things off and built upwards the next level of the city on top of the old, and that's the picture that's being done here. So the walls are repaired and built higher, and inside them then is the uh, the new building going up and being replacing what was underneath it, and it's kind of a neat picture in that regard. Okay, so... Um we have uh, we have this remnant talk. We have restoration talk. Who is God through Amos talking about? Who is this remnant, and who will be restored? Are we talking about a political group, or are we talking about a theological remnant or restoration, or does one lead to the other? Well, when we're talking about remnant, we're <clears throat> we're usually talking about people who believe. And so it's carried out. It's not just stuck to the people of Israel, although generally it is. Uh, but it has to do with um, the promise made all the way back in the Garden of Eden uh, that one of the offspring of Eve will crush the serpent's head, uh, which is then made again to Noah, uh, then to Shem, uh, then to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, uh, that uh, one of their offspring will be this person. And it's passed down to David, which is why it's talking about the booth of David here, is because David receives that promise. Um, and then it's passed down all the way down and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Um, and all the people who trust God in regards to destroying Satan in Jesus, they are oftentimes pictured as the remnant because the world hates that idea, and the world is always fighting against that idea. And even in our world today, it looks like those who don't believe in Jesus are going to win and that they're gaining power and steam and influence against the church. And so God speaks about a remnant, those who are faithful, who remain true to God's word and trust in Christ, and that's the idea here as well. We have, uh, we have a metaphor or a word picture that is, uh, that is used here. And uh, it's, talking, it's a farming uh, picture. And it says, uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman, and we're in Amos 9, verse 13, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Um, this is backwards. This is backwards. What's what? What is this picture all about here, Pastor? Well, um, it's about abundance. And um, you think about it, when we plant corn here in Nebraska, it takes four or five months for the corn to grow and then to finally be harvested and what's been planted to be gathered in. And maybe even I'm being a little bit on the, the short side of things in this regard. But there's a time uh, for planting, and then later on there's a time for reaping. And what the point is here is that everything will be so good that as soon as you take it out of the field, you can plant it again and it'll be ready to go, and it won't uh, have deficiencies of nutrients, or, and you don't have to put the uh, uh, you know, nitrogen in the ground. You don't have to let it rest. You don't have to plow. Everything can just keep on going, and there'll be more than enough in both of these cases uh, for all of God's people. So instead of spontaneous combustion, what our text is displaying here is spontaneous harvest? 
Yeah. It's just going on and on and on and on again. And the word picture that is used is uh, they shall drink their, uh, plant their vineyards, drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And then in verse 15, God says, I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. One last time. Who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about the uh, children of Israel here? Is he talking about the nation of Israel that exists right now in 2020? Or is he talking about the new Israel, the church? He's talking mainly about the church. I mean, obviously there's the inaugurated eschatological, uh, inaugurated prophecy about the past where first Israel, but then by extension, the church. And, and that's exactly what he's saying here. So in other words, he's talking about you and me. Correct. And these are the things happening right now as the word of God goes forth. The one that has been promised has come. He has not only changed water into wine, but he has bled and died on Calvary's cross for the life of the world. He has risen from the dead victorious. He is really present with us. And now as the church proclaims this truth, who Jesus is and why Jesus has come, the manifestation of Christ's glory continues to go out to the four corners of the world. And this is happening right before our very eyes as people believe the gospel and as the kingdom of God is extended. Yeah. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? It is. Even, you know, I love the hymn, um, built on the rock, the church will stand even while steeples are crumbling, right? That's the truth. Uh, it doesn't care what it looks like. It doesn't look care. We don't care if it looks like the church is about to lose or be wiped out or that millennials aren't coming back or whatever. God is at work in his church and doing what he wishes in it, and it will accomplish what he wills in the end. Amen, amen, amen. We, uh, we need to take another break. This is Proclaiming the One. When we come back from our break, we're going to take a look at our epistle reading for the second Sunday after Epiphany, Romans 12, 6 to 16. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We're privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We'd love to have you come and worship with us. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 10.30 with Sunday School for All Ages in between. And every Wednesday, 6.30 p.m. Please join us, won't you? We're located just north of 40th and Old Cheney, 3825 Wild Briar Lane. All of our worship services are broadcast live right here on KNNALP 95.7. And if you're not able to pick us up live in your car, in the house, on your radio, you can always check us out on the internet, on the app, www.thecross957.org. You can also visit and check out all of our other theological programming and our archives and we'd love to have your feedback. We're looking now at the readings for the second Sunday after Epiphany. 
In our first two segments, we looked at the gospel reading, John 2, 1 to 11, the miracle, Jesus' first sign, where he changes water into wine. In our third segment, we looked at uh, kind of an obscure Old Testament reading, Amos 9, 11 to 15, and it's all about abundance. Abundance. Jesus made an abundance of wine. We have an abundance of harvest going on in this uh, eschatological picture that God, through the prophet Amos, gives. And now, what are we going to do with that abundance? Romans 12, 6 to 16. Vicar? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Wow, Pastor, we've got uh, a long, long laundry list of what a Christian should look like, what the Christian church should look like. In, in one respect, we have a long laundry list of expectations, duties, laws that we should, we at least should try to follow. And looking at this list uh, can make us feel pretty miserable. There is something going on with the structure of the book of Romans that helps us put these words in Romans 12 into perspective. We don't start reading Romans 12 at Roman, or wrote the book of Romans at Romans 12. There are 11 wonderful chapters that come before Romans 12. And the beginning of the book of Romans starts a new theological section. Um, Pastor, what is going on here in Paul's letter to the Romans, especially beginning in Romans chapter 12, with regard to the life of a Christian, the third use of the law, preaching, sanctification, all of those kind of things. Well, um, this last part of Romans does talk about living a Christian life, definitely. And so that's kind of the transition. Before it was talking about law, and then we had gospel discussion, and now we're talking about what a Christian looks like. But I want to point out how this passage actually begins uh, and the way that it's written here. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. And then it lists all these things that we're talking about, and these are the gifts that have been given to us. Um, uh, an abundance of gifts? Right. So 
We have prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, zeal, leadership, all these things that are given to us. And uh, as we know, where do all gifts ultimately have their source, and that is in Christ and God. The book of James tells us all good gifts come from the Lord. Right. And so we don't want to necessarily see these as law in the sense of you better do these or else you're going to hell because that then puts the the work of salvation into our laps instead of into Christ's lap. Rather, we say uh, Christ has earned for us salvation, and now he's given us these things which we have the freedom now to use, uh, uh, prophecy, leadership, uh, harmony, all these things. We are free in the gospel of Jesus Christ to do these things. And so I think that's kind of the way that Paul is writing this and structuring it so that we see these uh, as response to what God has done for us, response to the gift that he has given of faith. And that's the way then we ought to understand these things. Okay. So with that in mind, tying in, and you know, we've said on numerous occasions that the epistle reading is a very, very much a practical application of the themes that are brought out and taught in the gospel and Old Testament reading with this theme of abundance. And then we have this long list of gifts that God has given us. What are we to take um, with regard to this theme of abundance and this long laundry list of gifts that come from a gift-giving God? You want to ask that one more time here so I make sure I'm following what you're saying here? Okay. Sorry. How, how, how does... This long laundry list fit in or flow from the theme of abundance well, that has yeah. been brought out. Okay, so sorry, I just I rambled instead of asked a question. God, God um, gives us all these things graciously and abundantly, and, and you know whether you know abundance. God always provides more than we are. are we're aware that we even need. He gives us things without us even knowing and asking. Uh, most importantly, the thing that he gives without us realizing or knowing or asking is the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation in Jesus Christ. And then that it's in itself, when he gives us that, allows all the rest of these things to take place. I'm free to be patient with my neighbor because Christ has forgiven me my sins, and I know that Christ has forgiven him his sins. Uh, and so I'm free to uh, use the wealth that I have to take care of those people in need because ultimately all the things come from Jesus, and uh, I have been given all good things in him, and on the last day I inherit all of that stuff. And so I don't need to worry about the things that I have here and now. And this list could go on and on in that way. God provides more than we need, and that sets us free to use what he provides in service towards our neighbor and in love towards God. You said the word there that I want to focus on, and you know we can spend a lot of time talking about each one of these individual things that uh, God, through the Apostle Paul, is highlighting here. But I want to focus in on uh, verse 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Vicar, when we see that word love in the scriptures, 
what are we talking about and how should we understand this simple word love? The world has many definitions of love. How should a Christian see this? We should understand love as we have been loved. In a, in a pure, unconditional love, Christ's love toward us was genuine. Uh, Christ's Christ's love to us is with brotherly affection. And with that love being part of the abundant grace given to us, it should overflow that genuine love to one another. It should overflow with brotherly affection. Each one of these, uh, and very good, Vicar, uh, each one of these uh, gifts that God gives us can also be an instrument of the law because we we use the mirror of the law and we see that we are not always doing the kind of things that we should be doing. We're not always serving out of joy. We're not always contributing generously. Uh, we're not always cheerful with our acts of mercy. Sometimes we love what is evil instead of abhorring it. We hold fast to what is evil instead of holding fast to what is good. Um, when we find ourselves lacking in these gifts. These gifts seem to be in short supply in my life. Is the problem with God not giving the gift in abundance or is the problem with me? Pastor? Well, uh, whenever you ask a question that way, I mean, the, the answer is the problem is always with us and never with God. And that's the truth, right? Uh, not just because of the way the question is asked. We want things the way we want them, and we don't necessarily see how God has given us so much. Um, and and perhaps this is our sinful nature that we're always fighting against that needs to be drowned in the waters of holy baptism. And on the last day, that will completely uh, be eliminated from us. We want things now. We want them our way, uh, you know, as Frank Sinatra said, uh, and et cetera. That's not the way God gives. God gives is what is good and what is right and what is salutary. And sometimes we don't understand that God is still good. That doesn't change who God is, our sinful understanding. And I think that really piggybacks on everything that Vicar said before about the word love. And then your comment that love is manifest most and best in the forgiveness of sins. Through the forgiveness of sins, we are forgiven for all the times we have not used the gifts of God. We have been poor stewards of the gifts of God. We are forgiven by the blood of Jesus shed on Calvary's cross, and now basking in the glow of the resurrection of Jesus, immersed in the forgiveness of sins, eating and drinking Christ's body and blood in his holy supper. God fills us with his love, and that love overflows in our lives, and it overflows in an abundant way as we live our lives as the people of God that he has called us to be. And then God fulfills these words, first in Jesus, but then in us through faith and the forgiveness of sins. Last words on this text, Pastor. I, I think um, it's really an amazing thing for us to consider how all these things are gifts. Lots of times we don't think of it that way, do we? Um, we think of them maybe as things we have to accomplish. We think of them as 
um, burdens. Sometimes we think of them as sufferings that we have, and yet ultimately all of them come from God, and they are gifts for us and for our good and for our salvation and for the good and care and mercy of those around us. And we always need to remember that, and maybe this is what I mean by that. Lots of times we complain about these things, and yet uh, God is good and God cares for us, and so we should repent of that. Amen. Amen. Vicar, you want to bring things to a close with the collect of the day for the second Sunday after Epiphany? Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who governs all things in heaven and on earth, mercifully hear the prayers of your people and grant us your peace through all our days. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 For Pastor Moline and Vicar Golden, this is Pastor Clint Poppy. Thanks for tuning in to Proclaiming the One today. We'll be back again next week. Sunday morning when you get up, drink your coffee, read your paper, pray for your pastor. But most of all, go to church. God's richest blessings in the abundance of God's gifts for you in Christ Jesus our Lord.